Yes, sir. All right, here we go. Today is July 19th, 2015, also known as the day that my Verizon wireless bandwidth bill resets. Thank the Lord. Uh, 2015, and this is episode 124 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Good evening, Mr. Bell. So why is it so monumental that your wireless bill resets today? Uh, because my kids have been traveling, uh-huh. and they both have iPhones, and I think we are five times over our limit, so it's going to be like $100 in <laughs> overages. So. so what you're saying is you're really good at controlling your children's behavior. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. <laughs> Wow. Anyway. You know, you would think there would be like, as a parent, you could say, okay, for these phones, when they get to X amount of bandwidth, start throttling them as a control. on the. I mean, obviously, it's not in Verizon's best interest to do that, but you think it'd be a handy control as a parent it, controlling your, your, your children's it, cell phone porn usage. It most certainly would. I should have, like, I should have disabled, you know, LTE on them and... They would have been stuck with 3G, and that probably would have helped. But, you know, live and learn. I did see a cartoon the other day about instead of punishing our children by taking away their electronics and phones and such, just take away their chargers and then watch the agony as Uh their batteries slowly die. (laughs) That's cruel. Yes. Well, I'm a a bad man. I keep telling you this. That's true. All right. So uh, just a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our, those of our employer. Zuh. Since we don't work at the same place. Anyway. It's true. Alrighty, so getting into some stories, we have a kind of a spate of hacking team updates. It's uh, been a busy week for hacking team analysis. Yeah. I You know, as I said, I, I suspect people are going to be mining the crap out of their email for probably years to come. <laughs> do, you, do you think we fit all the all the O-days? Do you think we found I, them all? I don't think so. Well, we had a, yeah. an Internet Explorer yeah. O-day this past week from, from them. Um, so I'll just kind of jump in. The first, um, first story we have, I think most of these are from Ars Technica, and this one is hacking team apparently violated EU rules in sale of spyware to Russian agency. So the European Union, in response to uh, Russia's uh, apparent invasion, or um, I don't know how, if you're in Russia, it's it's couched, but um, uh, the EU, the EU passed a uh, a law say forbidding selling of of certain kinds of technology to Russia or to the Russian military, and that would have included this hacking team technology, and uh, apparently. The uh, hacking team sold some technology on uh, roughly a month later after that law was passed. So there's a there's quite a bit of back and forth, and it it appears that hacking team actually sold it to uh, one Russian company, who in turn sold it to another Russian company, who in turn is an agent of the FSB. Uh, but w- which it's is still illegal. Uh, of course, the uh, hacking team spokesperson says they've done nothing wrong, and uh, that Russia they don't have any active customers in Russia. So, not really sure exactly what that means. They apparently haven't actually denied selling to uh, to Russia. One thing I, I I'm not an expert in EU law by any stretch of the imagination, but Question: Are you an expert in anything? Um, no. Okay, carry on. Uh, so, so anyway, uh, it was my understanding, and I'm sure we have some people who will gladly correct me here, but it's my understanding that 
EU Parliament passes laws that then have to be adopted by their member countries. So, I, um, you know, that, that was my understanding, at least, that I don't know if Italy, for instance, had in turn implemented a law that enacted this EU law. So anyway, it'd be interesting if somebody can, can help me out there. Uh, did, is this actually an EU law that they broke, or would it have in turn needed to be an Italian law? Uh, but anyway, apparently they uh, they did some naughty things. And how do we blame this on Greece? Is my first question. I don't. I, I'm having trouble getting there. Mm. I don't know. We'll work on that. Yeah. Project. Uh, you project gotta, for next time. You, you got to feel a little sorry for these these guys. I mean, right or wrong, whatever your view on it, their entire archive of all business. And anything they've ever done is now laid bare for the entire world to nitpick, take out of context, you know, start rumors, write reports on, write articles on. It's got to suck to be there right now. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I, in the context, I think, of the uh, the Sony breach, we I, I conveyed the story that I used to work for a for an executive who had a very strong opinion about uh, email retention times. And his perspective was that, uh, that you really have to have a pretty, uh, pretty tight limit on how long you're, you'll, you can store email on a server for. And his point was, you know, if somebody were to get a hold of your email and this was decade ago, right? His point was if, if somebody gets a hold of your email, they can convict you of just about anything by taking your email out of context and, you know, picking and choosing things that you've said. I get it, and I agree with him. My counter would be the vast majority of people in business use email as a filing and and archiving system. But that's all the more problematic. It is, but let's let's take this in the context of everything we talk about in security. If you make it too difficult for people, they will go around you and find another way, right? So every other option that we've presented, you know, whether it be for productivity, whether it be for security, people love to use email as a storage medium. I don't disagree. I'm not <laughs> I'm not yeah. disagreeing with you. I'm just So I guess what I don't mean to cut you off, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Um I guess what I'm saying is that at some point we can't I think we failed to convince the users of the world to not use email as long-term storage and archiving. So then it comes down to how do we secure it better? Yeah. Yeah. For a long time, we didn't have enough bandwidth to really worry about this problem from an outsider. True. Right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to pull 400 gig over a T1 without that getting noticed. Hopefully. Yeah. True. Knock on wood. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so in part, our, the rise of bandwidth has has made these remote data exfiltration issues so much more prevalent, and I think we don't look at emails all that sensitive. No, it's in in you probably any given email is not all that sensitive, um, but you know it it, it kind of points to you know, back to the fact that if if you have sensitive emails that you probably ought to be encrypting it right like at the message level which okay. which would have helped mitigate this maybe it depends on what rights they had no no i'm talking about uh like um pgp encryption of oh, the between, of the individual yeah between the sender between and users the, yeah right, right right uh okay how does that work in a reply to all scenario that is the I I'm not saying that I have a good idea. America. It's just an idea. You no, know, I get it. <laughs> I guess I just go back to yes, we can come up with mitigating controls, and I agree with that. But what I'm what I'm struggling with, and the only reason why I'm sort of challenging on this is, you and I can do that. The vast majority of employees can't, or won't. Yeah, that's fair. So so then you know if we're going to look at it from a practical standpoint, then what? And especially, it sounds like a lot of the most damning, for, for lack of a better term, email that they that are being pulled out are emails that that are being exchanged with outside entities. And so it's it's probably 
within the realm of reasonable reasonability to encrypt internal email like that, it's probably not reasonable to expect that you could do that with outside partners because there's no standard. And so. if I'm the company's lawyer, I'll say save that for at least 10 years. Yeah, true. You know, so you've got competing goals here. So I think, you know, in my mind, I the takeaway is don't think of email as this innocuous, not important source of data. You yeah. know, sh- yeah. I'm not, not that this is in any way the gold standard, but it just shows you the immaturity of the thinking. Show me any of the compliance standards that mention hardening email security for exfiltration and attack. I don't know of any. No, nothing in particular. I mean, I think yeah. the expectation is that you're applying those standards consistently. But, I mean, like, uh, there's nothing akin to PCI for email. You know, yeah. there's, there's no, you know, like cardholder data environment for uh, for email. So, it's true. Uh, so moving on to the next hacking team lovely story is uh, hacking team's evil Android app had code to bypass Google Play screening. And there's actually also a, a, a similar story relative to iOS from this one comes from SC Magazine. And uh, in, in the case of the Android Play Store, what apparently they did was, uh, or the Google Play Store, apparently what they did was uh, they had a a news app called B News that uh, requested some innocuous permissions, but it had included in it a privilege escalation exploit. Uh, and this particular app apparently had only been downloaded 50 times, but their the, the the author's belief is, or I guess this is Trend Micro, uh, their belief is that potentially there's, you know, that was actually just a proof of concept, and it was to see if they could buy the security controls of right, Google Play. Right, yeah. it was kind of weaponized on a case by case basis for specific customers. You know, so a, a particular customer will come to them and say, "Hey, I want to, I want an app that does X, Y, and Z," and they would. Uh, you know, they would kind of wrap in this lovely bit of technology and then off they go. Uh, and then in the case of iOS, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about, well, as long as you don't break, you have a jailbroken iOS device, you know, you're good to go. Uh, this new story, this new revelation shows that, well, that's not entirely true. Mm-hmm. Because apparently uh, Apple, or sorry, hacking team had an Apple developer certificate which effectively allows them to, you know, sideload without a lot of bells and whistles going off applica- uh, you know custom applications that they uh they wrote even on non-jailbroken devices. So clever bastards um I guess clever bastards will be clever bastards, won't they? <laughs> well, that, that is somewhat self-evident, yes. Uh, uh but you know, it's funny because we're seeing in one tight little bundle all of the FUD and sort of some of the worst case scenario stuff that we've thrown around for a while now. Yeah. And these guys had it all assembled. So it tells me other people have it all assembled. Yeah. I can't just given, uh, you know, given the totality of what we've seen, I don't think they're necessarily all that unique in what they had, (laughs) but they had a heck of a toolkit. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I don't have a link for it uh, right now, but there was also a story about, uh, they have a BIOS uh, rootkit, so a UEFI rootkit that infects your BIOS and survives, you know, even hard drive. Wait, uh, I wipes. think I've heard this story before. I know, I know. And that, when when that one broke, I I tweeted out that uh, you know it kind of sounds like bad BIOS is turning out. The entire bad BIOS ecosystem is turning out to be something, you know, a product of hacking team. You're just a bad BIOS truther. <laughs> It could be, it could be, uh, and then uh, then the the, the next. Well, can oh, can I ahead. stop for a second though? Yeah, go ahead. Right. So we talk about all this stuff, and over the over the past couple of years, we've had this concept that advanced attacks can only come from state sponsors. Now, show me with this toolkit that has just been laid bare from hacking team. Any of the major attacks that had to have been state sponsored could have been done. In my opinion. 
without really diving into every single one. Yeah. You know, uh, let's go back to Sony. It had to be North Korea or, you know, whatever. It had to be China because they're the only ones who could afford this and could do this. But look, look, you know, this is something you can buy on the black market or buy from, uh, you know, gray market or, or perhaps even the, 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 uh, you know, the, the private sale industry from, I'm trying to figure out, you know, legitimate business. I, I, I don't know if you want to call hacking team legitimate or not. This is possible. So to go to the only answer being state sponsored, I think is again, uh, a mistake. And, and I still question what the motivation is to keep going back to that as the only answer. It, in, in a, in an, an inception like a turn of events, apparently the hacking team breach is being, of course, blamed on a nation state. <laughs> and and I think it is no it, well. It's it's purely coincidental that the incident response re, response firm is apparently Mandiant. So that right, complete. It's just another isolated incident. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but we need a soundbite for that. We need like a little music. <laughs> Yes. Every time it's another isolated incident. Completely <laughs> coincidental. Um, you're, you're on a you're on a good point, and I would think that given the you know the breach and the fact that all this source code has been, I think multiple times been uploaded to uh, Pastebin, you know, the, now it's even worse because now all these techniques, the code, the tactics, everything. Is out there for all, you know, all to copy and mimic, and I would, I would expect that attribution was hard before and is going to be even harder now because, you know, these state-sponsored like tactics that apparently this company had, uh, you know, had been selling, is now in the open. You know, it's it's in the public domain. I wonder how many uh, IOC type feeds got updated with hacking team stuff over the last couple of weeks. Probably good, all of them. Good question. I, I don't know. And I wonder how many got hits. I that's one thing I wonder about a lot is um, you know retrospectively looking back at the the zero days that that were found and uh, you know the, the tactics that have been released. How many times have these been seen? I you know I think there was a story about one of the Adobe Zero Days had been seen uh, a, a previously a couple of times, but that was just a little minor story though. However, we have seen cases where the same Zero Day has been independently found by different organizations. True. So uh, you know you'd always have to get to you know same code level or something. I don't know. Uh, just at a general level, though, it doesn't necessarily prove it. But it is interesting. Uh, I wonder, net-net, if this is helping us by all these things being leaked. Look at all the patches that got, you know, zero days taken off the market, patches that got released. Uh, Flash, in finally, actually, from the Google Zero Day initiative, built in some more robust overall architecture to Flash uh, that would help with zero days like this in the future. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's good and bad, but I got to think taking zero days as a defender, taking zero days out of circulation is a positive, assuming people patch. Now, the question is, in the meantime, how much damage is being done as this gets blown all over the place while we are trying to patch? Uh, the net benefit that I see coming out of this, or one of the net benefits, other than zero days being taken off the street, is the general awareness about that these, these things are real, they're not magic. It it isn't exclusively in the domain of the, of advanced nation states, and um, in this stuff is it's complicated. It's detail oriented, and uh, we're you know as defenders, we you know we have our our work cut out for us, and we're going to have to, in my view, kind of dramatically change. Uh, you know, if we if we want to stay ahead, we're going to have to change our game. So that's my kind of my takeaway. Um, so yeah, and it argues yet again and yet again that prevention is failing. We have to invest more in detection. Yeah, yeah. Or 
you know, or fundamentally change the way defense is done, which, you know, I'm not even sure how that that would go. And I'm sure there's plenty of uh, vendors out there who would who would uh, you know stand up and tell me how that would work. But uh, but I you know, I, I, I agree fundamentally with your, your point The the next story we have hacking team related is uh, from Brian Krebs. And the title is hacking team used spammer tricks to resurrect spy network. Shocking. Yeah, yeah. So um, when this came out, it was a bunch of hoopla, and the the story here is that an uh, an Italian, the Italian National Military Police, had a botnet uh, running, which they used for intelligence gathering on some unknown um, targets, and uh, and they had been running their infrastructure at a at a hosting company. On uh, you know, I, you know, I, I guess it was on a reseller. As far as I can tell, it was on a on a reseller's uh, server. Don't have a ton of detail on that, but at some point, for some for whatever reason, uh, the IP address space that this host the server was hosted on just went away. They stopped. You know, the the provider stopped announcing it. So I don't know if they closed up shop or that's not not very clear to me. However, the effect on the Italian national military police was they lost their connections to their to their uh their bots and uh and, and so uh they worked with hacking team and another ISP to announce that address space out you know through the through this other ISP's uh, you know basically associated with their AS number and did a BGP announcement set up a server Set up a you know hacking team, uh, command and control server, regained access to these bots, pointed them to another command and control server, and off they were going. And apparently, this is some super complicated attack um, that you know that that got people really up in arms. This is like basic stuff. I mean, it's not hard to announce an I a net block. If you have an AS and you're an ISP whose upstream accepts, you know, routes from you, this is not hard. This is not complicated stuff. And in fact, we see shenanigans happening all the time with, you know, different ISPs in different parts of the world announcing major big net blocks and having... Half the time they're just fat fingers and misconfigurations. Oh, yeah, sure. But um, but it happens, you know, this, this, isn't, this isn't like advanced... No attacking techniques here. And if you if you want to know more BGP, which I really suggest you do, uh, OpenDNS, who bought uh, uh, BGP Mon back in March, by the way, and is launching a BGP hijacking monitoring service or something. Anyway, they, their blog they had a two part blog on BGP and how it runs the internet, and it's actually a good primer. Go read that on OpenDNS.com's blog. But you know. This really shouldn't be a problem because ISPs should know what ranges should be coming from their customers, and they should be filtering for that. Yep. And this is where they fall down, is it's really the ISPs filtering the inbound announcements. Yeah, but once you get, once you, as you get closer and closer to the, you know, to, to the internet core, it becomes harder and harder to do that filtering. It's true. And as we all know, the Internet Core is actually in Fargo, North Dakota. True. And it's running off of an old SunSpark. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> Uptime is like, through, what is it? I think they're up to 18 years now. <laughs> you so funny. <laughs> Carry on. All right, so so that that's uh, that's the uh, the hacking team fun for the week. So what what is your overall take on hacking team as an entity? Good guys, bad guys, somewhere in between. They were they were people who were filling a market. That was a very evasive answer. But yes. no, I I mean I so is my crack dealer down the street, buddy. Well, fair, uh, okay, fair enough. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, 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 look. I think the I think the the reality is that if it wasn't them, it would be someone else. 
Um, I I personally find the whole industry that they're playing in a little reprehensible, but you know, just at at a personal level. But I, you know, I, I kind of understand. Well, do you find weapons manufacturing kinetic weapons repre- reprehensible? No. Well, I mean, not not particularly. I I think I find this reprehensible in because it is, uh, it's intended. I mean, it's it's a it's a different purpose, right? It's it is um, it is not it it is used far beyond what uh, you know what kinetic weapons are are used for. But I guess it's it's in the hands of the user that make these good or bad, right? Well, and that's what it comes down to. Exactly right. So, and, it, and it, I guess my point is that if it, if hacking team weren't there, and if no other commercial company were there, you know, governments are going to still come up with this stuff on their own. Well, that that's a stretch. They can barely come up with. Well, it depends. Know. I mean, it depends. Right. <laughs> depends on which government you're talking about. <laughs> right. And, uh, maybe maybe very small governments, and it would take them 18 years, and it would only be valid for Windows <laughs> 3.1. You, you know, there was an interesting, um, going back to the story about Russia, um, Russia buying, uh, allegedly buying some of the hacking team uh, software, there was an interesting uh, assertion by, I think it was the second layer deep uh, organization, that uh, the reason they bought it was not for offensive use, but actually to analyze it and and be able to defend against it. Well, it's possible. It's plausible. Uh, yeah. I also think it's interesting, right, that if I've got a zero day that I'm selling, I have to find this careful balance. If it's overused, the value is diminished. You know, especially if the manufacturer finds out about it and patches it. Now, not everybody patches but it's a, probably an interesting, intricate dance they have to go through to figure out the right amount of use of their effective zero days. Yeah, you know, I think one thing that I, I, I would like to impart upon people is that I don't think that the zero days are the major story here, at least from a, you know, from a... Um, from an attack perspective in in a, a broader uh, systematic risk perspective because you know yeah there we know for instance that the uh, the Adobe flash zero days were weaponized really fast I mean we know that we know that happened and they got pushed out and that's that's a flash in the pan where I think the major long-term ramifications are going to be is, what people have learned in terms of, you know, the, so you can, zero days are going to come and go, right? But these these tactics on how to integrate those into an ecosystem of an attack platform, that's where I think the larger systemic risk is going to lie. And, that, and I think we're going to be wrestling with criminal organizations and probably even some governments using what they've learned from this disclosure for some time. Well, on the defender side, this is something we've got to think about too, is how do we defend against zero days? Yeah, yeah. Patching is not uh, only... our. If patching is our only response, we have no adequate controls to fight zero days. True. You know, and then that opens up a whole big conversation about how do you get intelligence as zero days are floating around? How do you boil that into your vulnerability management program? How do you mitigate those zero days? You know, there's, it's a complicated topic. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Anywho. All right. So, uh, you know, if, if, if it were an easy answer, I, I'd be off uh, making billions of dollars instead of sitting here talking to everyone. Making a dollar. Making a dollar. Well, so we, we do have Patreon donors. I know, I know. And I we love our Patreon donors. I kid. Yes, we love our Patreon donors, and we are uh, we are in the process of of uh, sending out some love. We've got some special top secret swag that's going out to the Patreon donors first. That's right. 
All right, so moving on to our next story, which is not hacking team related, and this one comes... Well, the hell with it, then. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> this one comes from SC Magazine, <laughs> and uh, the title is Avoid Hiring a Cybercriminal, Understand Motivations, and Thoroughly Vet Employees. So the, the impetus for this story was a large multinational crackdown on the Dark Ode online criminal forum uh, that... Uh, apparently spanned 20 different countries and netted 70 arrests, including a person named Morgan Culbertson, who happened to be an intern at none other than FireEye. Um, and apparently Mr. Culbertson had uh, had actually been the creator and distributor of the Dendroid Android malware, <laughs> which, uh, which is... Uh, relatively pervasive and he uh he sold it for the low low price of 300 bucks and and you could buy the source code the whole package for you know sixty five thousand dollars. i cannot abide these illegal hacking aliens coming in and undercut the valid market for pricing for exploit code like this undercutting the market C- completely completely i mean how do you think how how does somebody like Hacking Team compete when you got this kind of crap going on? It's not on? fair. It's not fair. There should be a law. <laughs> In fact, there is. So uh, so anyway, you know. And by the way, that will be interesting to see if you know if this were to have happened, uh, maybe a year in the future, and that, that all that Wassenaar stuff goes through. I bet you he would be able to. He would be charged on yet another. Uh, for yet another crime, because this, I believe, would fall into that could be bucket. So, so is the allegation that he grabbed Intel out of FireEye for some of his shadier activities? You know, n- no, and that's the that's kind of the maddening thing about this is, you know, it's uh, there's uh there's <laughs> there's all this hoopla about well, you should not hire cyber criminals. And, you know, this person had all kinds of access to, uh, you know, he worked for FireEye and, and therefore he, you know, he would be able to evade technology. And so, number one, I'm not sure FireEye does a whole lot in the terms of Android, uh, which apparently is his forte. And, uh, you know, the, the other thing is apparently FireEye does do background checks. And, you know, this person's all of 20 years old, so he probably doesn't have, he's not a hardened criminal, I'm guessing. And so, you know, the whole the whole point about this is smacks of the, the, the debate that flares up every couple of years about, whoa, we should not be hiring, you know, hackers because they're, they're terrible people. And, you know, I guess that becomes a philosophical... Well, uh, hacker is a bad term, right? Hacker's uh, probably. Well, I agree, but we this, should but qualify this, that in some way. But this, you know, I I don't understand the con. How is that discussion coming up in the context of this story? Because this person was not like some convicted hacker, you know, convicted. Ah, uh, whatever. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Whatever. I'm gonna share something with you that most people don't know. All right. Journalists have an agenda. Really? And they have a story they want to tell. Oh, fine. I agree with you. It is, you know, from what we know now, I I don't even think the article talks about what he did for FireEye. He worked on some some intern-focused program. Um, And, you know, in the... to FireEye's credit, when they've learned of the arrest, they terminated all of his access. But it, I don't think he was working on their core. Well, I mean, I guess it doesn't really say what the heck he was working right. on. But um, uh, I have friends at FireEye. I could probably sniff around, but that probably isn't something I could share on the on the show. But um, let's assume, just for the sake of conversation, that he was in their malware research department. Straight up malware research. Just sake of conversation. Yeah, I don't know that FireEye is encountering a ton of Android stuff, but then again, we also don't know if they're working on products for Android. Yeah, that's that's fair. We that's don't fair, know, what, but you know, what there's techniques they're researching. There's just there's just this undercurrent of assertion that uh, you know that that this person was leveraging his position, you know, on, on both sides, you know, to uh, right. 
anyway, I just find the whole thing a little off-putting. I hear you. I I don't think it's the case in this scenario, but I do think about, this makes me think about, and this is exactly what's frustrating you is this point, that this is not related, but we have a huge shortage of talent. I wonder if that makes certain companies a little looser in their hiring standards to get good InfoSec people on board. Uh, I mean, it could be, but it, this is not an epidemic problem, right? I mean, we're not we're not hearing story after story, or even any stories at all, about you know convicted criminals in in the IT department of a company. Do you have no compassion for these authors and these journalists who need to drive clicks? Uh, obviously, I do. Do you not care about their needs? No, I guess I don't. A unique headline drives velocity. Oh boy. So insensitive. All right. I'm sorry. Do you even culture, bro? <laughs> I'm sorry. So let's move on to our last story. <laughs> uh, this one comes from ERP Scan, and it's a, it's a report they published uh, based on the attack on USIS uh, Warning. Last, last year. It's a PDF, just so you know. It is a PDF. It's a PDF warning. Opening it may kill your grandparents. I don't know. Trigger warning. Yeah. It could could assassinate your teachers. I have no idea. But just so you know. So so this really points out a couple of things. It's a a 15-page long PDF. USIS was a background uh, investigation company uh, who had, I think, 23,000 records stolen at the time and uh, were subsequently, uh, they subsequently lost all of their contract, government contracts and, uh, and which totaled the $2.3 billion if I'm, if memory serves. And I did the math, something didn't seem right to me. So I I don't know if there's something else, but they, they lost 23,000 records, right? Which are, sorry, 25,000 records. And they had contracts worth $2.8 billion. I did the math. That's over $100,000 per uh, per background check, apparently. That's that. So I'm, I, I, there that, must that be more. Be right. that, must, that cannot be right. There must be more. Must be more to the story. I would expect a background check to go for a couple hundred. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe they have other lines of business that make up the other the difference. But um, well, yeah. Well, they did. Well, they they did because they file they filed for bankruptcy, so they apparently don't anymore. So a direct breach disclosure led to the business going away. Uh, yes, and and um, it's a little more involved than that because apparently the breach resulted from a USIS vendor. Does this sound familiar to you? Uh, being breached, and that vendors system had access to uh to this SAP application right so SAP and uh, so this application apparently was not publicly accessible uh but it was accessible to USIS um some USIS vendors including this other one who I don't think they named was compromised and and uh, used as a launching point to get into this SAP application and uh, a lot of the reports actually them this ERP scan company trying to divine based on the time frame which specific vulnerabilities were exploited and so they go through a list of you know which likely uh, you know li- likely things were used <laughs> and and their uh, their most likely candidate by the way was <clears throat> a default administrative uh, password, uh, which was released, a patch was released in 2002 for, and, uh, so, you know, 11 years later, this, this, uh, this happened. So why do you have such unrealistic patching expectations, Jerry? I, well, it takes time. And, and that is the point that I wanted to drive home, <laughs> which is that these really big applications are extraordinarily hard to patch. And I think um, on the one side, they're very hard to patch. And on the other side, people get this sense of comfort because, well, it's only on, it's only accessible internally. It's not, it's not on the internet. And, and therefore we should worry less about not having patched it. And, um, you know, I, I think that 
as time goes on, we're seeing more and more of these applications, whether it was Home Depot or Target or OPM or USIS, uh, targeting these line of business applications. You know, it's it's becoming common knowledge how to exploit some of these things. And most people that encounter, most attackers that encounter them probably know that they've not been patched and they're going to, they're going to poke at them. So, yeah, you know, 100% agree. you know, the, here's, here's a good opportunity, you know, again, from a monitoring perspective, you might, you know, if you, if you aren't, if you can't patch it, and by the way, I understand having, you know, having worn the IT hat, I understand the problem, right? Because you, you invest, you know, sometimes tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in this application long time ago, and you really can't upgrade it. You know, the, the, the up, there isn't an upgrade path or at least one that is cost effective. And so what are you going to do instead? You know, and they... Well, it goes back to what we talk about a lot, which is proper risk profiling. Right. Understand the threat model and then understand ways you can mitigate against it. Right. And in this case, it might be monitoring. It might be, you know, anomaly detection on users. It might be, I don't know, all sorts of stuff. Right. Yeah. Something. I mean, I, I, hopefully, the, hopefully the message is starting to get out that these things are, you know, they're being targeted. They're, they're vulnerable. And, you know, in my, also my experience, I don't know if, if it's your experience too, but a lot of times these applications, you know, you're not allowed to scan them. Yeah, which I have zero sympathy over. Zero. I really don't. I, 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 if scanning it's going to knock the application over, what do you think a bad guy's going to do? I hear you. I'm with you. I'm with you. I, I, mind you, that's not a popular opinion, but I would challenge it anytime it came up, and I would challenge it regularly. In other words, if, it were, if I had control over that scenario and as, as the guy running the scanner and somebody said to me, you can't scan that application, I would demand to know why. I would give them a deadline of, I don't know, a year and say, what are you going to do to remediate it? I'm going to be scanning that application in a year. <laughs> it, I, I would also say, if someone tells you that you can't scan something, that should like set the hair on the back of your neck. Absolutely. There up. should be there's nothing off limits to the bad guys. Why should it be off limits to the good guys? Yeah, yeah. Well, and 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 I would also say that there's probably a there's probably a, a correlation between things that people people don't want you to scan and things that are are going to be a real problem, right? For you, you know. And you know, a, a good scanner can also be tuned tremendously, very low and slow, very you know aggressive. You can you can do a lot. So for somebody to say it's fragile, don't scan it. Uh, there's a lot more nuanced answer to that in terms of well, what's the problem? What are you concerned about? Right. Right. You know. Absolutely. So, I don't know. I just, I, I, I just think that that is once again that's somebody accepting a risk they don't understand they're accepting by saying it's too risky for you to scan this box, so you don't scan it. They're mitigating one risk, which is uptime, you know, or downtime in this case. But in turn, accepting a completely different risk that may be larger long term, and right. do they have the knowledge and the authority to truly accept that risk? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So. Uh, so yeah. I had one other quick item. Go ahead. Windows two thousand three went end of life this last week. So long, we hardly knew ye. Uh, I wonder, much like XP, how much of Windows 2003 is still rolling around in the environment? I bet there's quite a lot. So what this means is no new security patches. Unless you're unless you pay right, paying lots. A, yeah. So come next month's Patch Tuesday, when all sorts of issues roll out, people yeah. are going to start quickly figuring out: Are these also appropriate to Windows 2003? New hacking team vulnerabilities. And bad, bad things will occur. It will be ugly. Probably so. So, might be worth thinking about some mitigation techniques. I don't know. Application whitelisting, EMET, something. Absolutely. Uh, 
anyway, uh, yeah, that and it, it is frustrating to see how many companies I think are getting caught flat-footed on that. You know, Microsoft has not kept that a secret. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, you know, I've got a buddy at another company who was telling me that they've got a couple hundred still in the environment. And they're going to the folks who use those machines for whatever application. And I don't know all the details, but they basically were saying, uh, no, we can't, we can't move off our application. It's not compatible with anything else. So let me get this straight. You have an application you're running that's only capable of running on a Windows 2003 server. So this tells me likely that this application has now been orphaned. So it probably can't be patched itself. So that application is probably also end of life. Yep. That is an interesting problem. <laughs> well, it's not a, it's not unlike the, you know, the, the thing we just talked about. You know, you get these you get these old legacy applications and you know, it it becomes difficult or impossible to to upgrade them and you know, I, w- one thing that I think would do us well and I think it's. I think we're kind of moving away from this with the whole agile and DevOps uh, movement. Is that we really, when we go into a big development, you know, you're going to deploy Oracle Financials or you know SAP or something like that, or, or even something smaller, so, something lesser. You really have to think through the lifecycle plan. You know, because at some point, it, when you go into those things, you're, you know, it's all about, you know, how are we going to modify our business processes to suit this stupid thing? And, not, you know, and all of the the hoopla that goes along with that. And, you know, are, do we have the right number of servers and, and right, you know, database server licenses and all kinds of things like that? But we often don't think about you know, what's going to happen? It's kind of like uh, when you buy a car, you know, <laughs> at some point you're going to have to get rid of the car, you know, and, and, but you're not thinking about that when you go buy the car, you're, you're yeah. just enamored with this new, new piece of technology. And, and I think this is in some respects how we get here, you know, and, and so we don't develop the solution in a way that's maintainable. But we've been doing this long enough now. This is a known problem. I, it is, but every, I see everybody doing it. I agree. We should be doing better. And so, you know, I wonder, and this is crazy, off you know, off the off the hip shooting here, but I wonder if the whole movement towards um, you know cl- cloud hosted or SaaS style applications will ultimately help that. Uh, sure, you would think. Uh, it'll be interesting when important SaaS applications get orphaned, if that's possible, if that will happen. But right, yeah. Um, you know, along these kind of same lines, you know, Windows 10 coming out, the Home Edition, not professional, not corporate editions, Home Edition will have automatic automatic patching turned on and will be mandatory. Yeah, yeah. For the for the OS and Microsoft apps, right. And there's there's uh, some interesting debates about you know, the the, uh, the the uh, the sanity behind that, but um, I I have I see pros and cons. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. But I think overall, I think overall to result in a better environment for Microsoft and their users. But they're giving up control, right? You know whether they like it or not. But I think the average American sitting at home with their Windows box is probably better off having it this way. I I, I don't I don't disagree with that. I think the the problem we're going to see is going to materialize in in some of their problematic patches. You know and. and there are some people who have asserted that actually this might be why Microsoft is has adopted this position is that you know they will soak it out in the commercial market for a little bit before they push it out 
to commercial customers. I don't know. I, I don't really have uh, enough visibility into what they're their yeah. big patching strategy is to know if that's a, well, a real thing. The enterprise, or not. the enterprise res of Win Ten, and from what I'm understanding, will be similar today. You can put it as, at an SMS server. You can control when and how patches get pushed out. All that jazz. Right. But. Yep. So it'll be interesting. Um, I, I do think it'll be probably a net benefit for people's computers to be you know, patched, um, especially since, you know, we, we know that you know, most exploitation is at, at least at this point using things that are pretty old. So that's, uh, you know, that's not going to be a bad thing. I don't think so. Anyhow, uh, I think that is the show for this week. I appreciate everyone's time again. Thank you for our Patreon donors. Uh, thank you very, very much. Certainly appreciate that. Hopefully you enjoy the treat we are about to send to you. Uh, if you like the show, you can follow us on Twitter uh, at DefensiveSec. You can give us some uh, some five-star love on our iTunes page. Uh, you can uh, find the show in show notes with links to the stories that we've talked about on this show in past episodes on our website, www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow Mr. Callet on Twitter at Lurg, me on Twitter at Malicious Link. And uh, by the way, just a reminder that the uh, High Tech Crime Investigation Association conference is coming up uh, July, or sorry, August 30th through September 2nd in Orlando, Florida, htciaconference.org. I booked my uh, rooms and got my ticket today, so I hope Sweet. to see you there. I know you, not you, but. Sadly, yes, no. I you as in listeners. Yes. So, and I expect live daily updates. Wow! As to how the show's going? That's a that's a, that's a high bar there, Mister. Well, you know, I, I demand uh, perfection. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, everyone, and uh, we'll talk again next week. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. Bye. I, I've got a herd of animals down here with me, so. Dog just doesn't like me out of her sight right now. I don't know why. She uh, apparently she was throwing up last night. Is that? Um, uh, oh, nice. Was was that a a four legged critter? Yeah, puking. Oh. Well, apparently somebody's a critic. Uh, hang on one second. Not a fan of our show. Well, everyone's a critic. <laughs> you hate me. It's fine. No, carry on. It's all right. I know you hate me. That's fine. I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. I know you do. I, I'm aware. Good. Gl- glad we're on the same page. That's because you're an insensitive bastard. That's why you forgot. Well, that's true. I mean, I, I, I don't want to you know, point it out so obvious, but... I mean, I, I hope that you're not just now figuring that out. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.